Amen. Good morning, everyone. So great to see you. I'm so glad you're here. Um, why don't you go ahead and have a seat? We're glad you're, you're in worship with us this morning. We're going to uh, pause now to receive our tithes and offerings. You know that God, God loves a cheerful giver, wants us to be happy when we give. And one way that we can be happy as we give is because we know that good is getting done. You remember, if you were here last week, you saw uh, the numbers of missionaries that we support in strategic places all over the world, and we're excited to be part of their lives and support, and I know that that brings you joy as you think about it. One other piece of, of our initiatives over the years with regard to missions, uh, extra-local missions, global missions, has been in the nation of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a nation in Central Asia. It was part of the former Soviet Union. It is a, was a largely unreached place, and about 20 years ago, we sensed God calling us to go to Kazakhstan as a congregation to adopt the Kazakhs as a people that we would attempt to reach. And our initial mission statement when we went to Kazakhstan 20 years ago was we will do whatever we can by any means that we can to reach as few people as necessary in order to see a Christward movement initiated and sustained among the people of Kazakhstan and Central Asia. And we teamed up people from our own congregation, sent them to Kazakhstan. We, they went to a little village called Bayerjan Mumshala. You can't get there from here. It is, it, is a, it is on the other side of the planet. Kazakhstan was a nation that had never heard the gospel. Uh, when we went to that country 20 years ago, 20 million people in Kazakhstan, maybe 100 people who knew Jesus in the whole country. So it was a place completely untouched with the gospel we felt called of God. We, we planted our own members, parishioners from Union Chapel, in this village called Bayerjan Mumshala. We began to learn the language, make friends, offer Christ, see the church established. And 20 years later now, we can, we can say that in large part, our initial mission has been fulfilled because where there was only about 100 people who knew Jesus in Kazakhstan 20 years ago. Today, there are tens of thousands of believers in Kazakhstan. Isn't it wonderful? It's just amazing. Praise God. We're, we're thrilled about that. The, the uh, board of directors for our initiatives in Kazakhstan, Interlink Resources, has just met the last few days. And I wanted to announce to you today that we're taking uh, a different approach. Now, we're transitioning in our approach in Kazakhstan. 20 years ago, we needed pioneers. We needed initial entry strategies. We needed to plant seeds that would help sp spring up and establish the church in Kazakhstan. Now, there are churches in Kazakhstan and rather than that kind of direct primary approach, we are shifting to a secondary approach, and we want to now come alongside the churches that exist in Kazakhstan and the other agencies that are there that we can support and take a secondary role to, to help and instruct and nurture and in any way that we can be, be helpful to the growing church in Kazakhstan. So I know you're excited about that. Today we're going to continue with our missions theme as we do at this time of the year in November. You also have your faith promise in your bulletin today. We're going to receive these at the end of the service today, so you might want to have those handy. I didn't ask you to drop them in the offering because uh, you may hear this message and want to increase your promise before you turn it in. So keep that handy. We'll collect those at the end today. Today I want to look at uh, one of the minor prophets, Jonah. And it's a minor prophet only because of the brevity of the book. It's just four chapters, but it is not minor in terms of its drama. 
This is a fascinating book of the Bible. Jonah's story is an interesting one, and we would do well to understand it. And so today I want to just take from Jonah a lesson in missions, and I hope that it will be personally applicable to you. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to Jonah, the fourth chapter, and I'm going to read that chapter for us, those 11 verses. Let me just set it up for you just for a moment. Jonah was called, as a prophet of God, called by God to go to a city called Nineveh. It was the Assyrian capital. Uh, the Assyrians were a, a very powerful people in the day. They, they were quite barbaric and, and mistreated their enemies severely. If I, if I describe to you with some detail how they treated their enemies, the peoples they conquered, it would literally make you physically ill. It, I mean, they were, they were rough. They were, they were a very hated people in the world. Jonah's people were mistreated by the Assyrians. So when God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach repentance so that the Ninevites might repent of their sins, otherwise the judgment of God is coming, Jonah said, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't like the Assyrians. In fact, I loathe the Assyrians. You got the wrong boy for this job. And so rather than going north to Nineveh from where he was, he went, he went west via Joppa and was headed by, by water across the Mediterranean to a place called Tarshish. That's where he was headed. So we pick up the story there where Jonah is, uh, is heading the other direction. But, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. See, Jonah, Jonah is on this ship, and this storm comes up, threatening the lives of the men on the ship. And the captain of the ship realized someone on board is, a, is out of God's will. And so they pitch Jonah overboard to get the storm to stop. And a large fish swallows Jonah. He's in the belly of this fish for three days. And then it get, he spats him out on the shores of Nineveh. And, then, and Jonah's all ticked off. He didn't want to be there. So he preaches this message of repentance. And, and the Ninevites repent. And it angers him. But he still thinks, he still thinks that God's going to send his judgment. So Jonah goes up on the hill on the east side of the city. And he just makes a camp up there, and he just waits to see what, see God's going to smash the city in judgment. <laughs> and, and so Jonah's there, verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, this, this is to the level of an expletive. Jonah said, yeah, I'm angry. I'm damn angry. I'd rather be dead than be here preaching to the Ninevites. But the Lord said, 
You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The last question there is rhetorical. You're all concerned about your comfort, but isn't it better that I be concerned about the souls of these people who I care about very much? May God inspire us through his word. Thanks so much. Well, here is Jonah. He is in a part of the world that continues to make history every day. Every day. Interestingly enough, 800 years later in the same region, maybe some of you heard the, heard the city, the name Joppa. This is where Peter was called to go. Remember God gave Peter, Simon Peter, a dream about the house of Cornelius. And he said, go to the house of Cornelius and and Peter said, I'm not going to the house of Cornelius. He's a Gentile. They're unclean. These people aren't, aren't clean at all. I'm not going. And God said to Peter, let me just remind you, you are not going to call unclean what I call clean. And so this region of the world throughout history continues to be a boiling pot of what God is doing. In Jonah's case, instead of going 500 miles north in Nineveh, he begins to head west toward Tarshish, these 2,000 miles away. And here's a point that we can make. Listen, when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're not merely standing still in life. You're not just treading water. You're actually losing ground. Your, your character is diminishing. You're depreciating in your spirituality and your vitality in your faith. So when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're not just holding, holding steady. You are actually sliding backwards. And so this is what's happening to Jonah. Bertrand Russell was a great English philosopher, and he was asked, when you stand before God and find out that he really exists, what are you going to say as a disclaimer for your rejection of him? And Russell said, I'll just look him in the eye and tell him he didn't give me enough evidence for his existence. Well, you know, the book of Romans reminds us that man's problem is not the absence of evidence because every human being actually has a sensitivity, a perception that there is a God in the universe and that we are part of his creation. Every human being has a God-shaped hole in their lives. And so we all have an instinct for God's existence. And so Paul wrote to the Romans that everyone naturally knows that. And so to suggest that there is no God isn't because there isn't enough evidence. It is rather the suppression of that evidence that has to come into play. And this has always been true anytime atheism tends to get traction in our world. And from time to time in history, we see atheism kind of get popular like it's becoming a little more popular in today's culture. But in order to become, to become popular, atheism has to first disregard God and suppress the evidence for God in order for them to embrace their philosophy of God's lack of existence. So here is Jonah suppressing the evidence and moving away from God's best plan for his life. Three points today on the outline. I just want to remind you that these are the problems that Jonah had that we should avoid if we can. The first one was this, that Jonah was out of touch with his mission. He was out of touch with his mission. Three times in 38 48 verses, 1,328 words, which the scholars refer to as a minor prophet. Three times God calls Jonah and says, Arise, go, and cry out. Arise, go, and cry out. Literally means wake up. Get up, Jonah. 
And God is forever waking him up. He's asleep throughout these four chapters. God has to wake him up. Jonah might be a minor prophet in the eyes of the scholars, but he is not a minor prophet in terms of intensity. In fact, Jonah is the only minor prophet that we see Jesus refer to in his teachings in the Gospels. He referred to Jonah. And so it is, it is important for us to get a grip on Jonah. But Jonah made fundamental mistakes. Let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoy flying? You enjoy flying. How many, how many of you don't enjoy it so much? That's interesting. All weekend, it's like more people don't. You know, you see more people being religious on planes than just about anywhere else. <laughs> sign of the cross and whispering prayers. It's interesting. I heard about one man whose flight was interrupted by a technical problem. The pilot comes on the intercom, reports a difficulty, said the landing gear won't come down, so we're going to have to dump the fuel and uh, prepare for a hard landing. The flight attendants coached the passengers and how to assume the brace position, which is place your head between your knees, grasp your ankles, and breathe normally. <laughs> Good luck with that. Have you ever wondered why they call those places we go to for, for airline travel terminals? <laughs> Just a thought. The pilot always indicates that we're on final approach. I was on an airline a couple of times this past week. You know, pilot comes on, we're 52 miles outside of Indianapolis, uh, flight attendants, prepare for the final approach. I th always think to myself, yeah, it's final. One way or another, <laughs> this is going to come to an end. <laughs> and that's the way it is. One thing you can say about an experience like that, if your airplane has some kind of technical problems, is that no one's going to be asleep. You cannot sleep through such a crisis, such a gathering storm. And would you agree with me, friends, that there is a storm, perhaps a gathering storm in our world today, and that some of us pretend to be asleep and out of touch with human need, which exists all around us? When that ship was in the middle of that storm, Jonah is found asleep. The captain has to wake him up. Are you the guy? Jonah said, yeah. And so they pitch him overboard. <laughs> Listen to me. Without a prevailing moral ethic, we are left with a world that is filled with people who are doing what they feel is right. People doing what they feel is right without enough of us asking what is the right thing to feel. Doing what they feel is right rather than asking what is the right thing from the wrong thing here. Jonah found difficult the task of going to places and ministering to people who were not only different from him but also reprehensible to him. He found it hard. Jonah, in this book, brands the people of Nineveh as immoral. God, why would I want to go there? These people are immoral. They're bad. They behave poorly. But Jonah failed to recognize that immorality is always preceded by impiety. Let me say it another way. People are immoral because they are first impious. We can complain about the, the moral choices and the ethical decisions and practices that people engage in, to the, in today's postmodern culture. But what we must remind ourselves of is that immorality in the streets is always preceded by irreverence in our heart before God. It's back to this whole atheist thing that people have to become first irreverent toward God in order to rationalize or justify whatever behavior or lifestyle they want to choose. Ultimately, 
the answer for human weakness and sin is something bigger than merely adjusting our attitudes or adjusting the way we live or our life choices, our morality. It's, it's more than that. We must all be changed at the level of our hearts. The only way that a human being can be transformed from one kind of person into another kind of person is if at the core of that person there is a power released in them that transforms them. And only God can provide that kind of transforming life change. And so we must remember that. Jonah got confused. Those people are bad. They misbehave. And I don't like them. But God was saying, wait a minute. It's really not about their morality. It's about their impiety. It's about their irreverence. It's about the rejection of accountability toward a God who loves them and cares about them. Let me tell you about one of America's first overseas missionaries. His name was Adoniram Judson, brilliant guy, Adoniram Judson. When Judson was 12 years old, now follow this. When Judson was 12 years old, he was already teaching adult Sunday school in his church from the original historic language of the Bible of Hebrew and Greek. He was a genius. He was an extreme genius. At the university, he had a roommate by the name of Jacob Imes. Remember that name. Jacob Imes. For some reason, these two young men decided to become antagonistic toward anything Christian. So Judson and Imes made quite a name for themselves as writers and antagonists opposing the faith on their university campus. Judson moved toward a career in the theater. And living in the town of Malden, Massachusetts, he at one point interviewed for a position in New York City. Riding back to his home in Massachusetts, he became weary and stopped for the night in an inn. When he inquired about a room, the keeper said there was no room. Judson asked for the front lobby and the offer a full price of a private room. Instead, the innkeeper said, there is a room, but it is adjacent to a room where a man is critically ill. He's dying of a disease that is very painful, and he's crying in fits of profanity with a stench coming out of his body. I don't know if you could withstand it. Judson said, just give me that room. Nothing is going to keep me awake. Well, he tried to get to sleep, but found it impossible as he listened to the man in the adjacent room in fits of raving and profanity and crying out. Judson tried to cover his ears, but nothing seemed to work. Eventually, the noise subsided. Judson went to sleep, and as he was paying his bill the next morning, he asked the proprietor, what happened? The man did get quiet in the early hours of the morning. Was he feeling better? The man said, no, sir. That man died early this morning. And Judson said, well, this must be a very difficult challenge for you. How do you manage such a thing? And the innkeeper said, this situation is a puzzle to me. The only thing I know about this man is he told me he was an honors graduate from Rhode Island College in Providence and that his name was Jacob Imes. Suddenly Judson said, what did you say his name was? His name was Jacob Imes from Rhode Island College in Providence. Judson did not realize for a moment or two how hard the blow was going to be when he recognized that the dying man next door to him had been his roommate at college for all those years, the very one crying out through the night in his death throes. Judson later wrote in his diary, I got on my horse and I tried to ride back home, but I couldn't because as the hooves of the horse went pounding into the ground, there were only these two words pounding in my heart, death, hell, death, hell, death, hell. 
Judson said he dismounted and began his own serious journey in commitment to Christ. How many of you can imagine that would be a sobering experience for a man? And got serious about renewing his faith in Christ and recommitting his life to his service. Judson went to India as a missionary. He was kicked out of India. He then went to Burma. He lost his first wife to disease. He remarried but lost his second wife as well. He also lost three of his children to the hardships of the field as well as other missionary colleagues. Desperately wanting to complete his work in translating the Bible into Burmese, before his death, he married for the third time another scholar, as it turns out. And now, as the Burmese authorities incarcerated him and in prison, he tells the moving story of his wife who had given birth to their child while he was in prison. Clutching the newborn in one arm, she crawled on her hands and knees to his prison cell so Judson, through the bars, could reach out and stroke the face of his newborn baby. Burmese authorities recognized that he was not long to live, and while completing his translation of the Bible into Burmese, while his wife completed the translation of the Bible into Thai, finally they put him on a boat to send him back to the United States. He never made it back. He died en route. On the side of his home in Malden, Massachusetts, today you could go there, and these words are etched in stone, and I quote, Reverend Adoniram Judson, born August 19, 1788, died April 1850. Molden, his birthplace, the ocean, his sepulcher, converted Burmese and the translated Burmese Bible, his monument, and his record is on high. It's a marvelous story, isn't it, of how God shaped the life of this man. Took the gospel message to Burma. Today, when the Burmese person opens the Bible to read his own language, he experiences Judson's work. When the Thai people open the Bible in their language, it was Judson's wife who translated it. And it all began when he looked beyond the immorality of the human condition to the spiritual root of the problem. The spiritual root. I heard this uh, little anecdote. Notable criminal in England was a man by the name of Charlie Peace. He was being taken to the gallows. And a minister was reading the word of God as they walked to the gallows. And Charlie Peace stopped and asked, what are you reading about? And the minister said, I'm reading about hell. And Peace said, Reverend, do you really believe what you're reading? Let me tell you something. He said, if I believed even half of what you claim to believe about hell, I would crawl across England on my hands and knees and count it worth my while, even if it to be littered with glass pieces to save one soul from that destiny that you so glibly talk about. Now think about this. See this picture that I've just described. A sermon to a preacher by a man heading to the gallows. If you were really serious about what you are talking about right now, if I were you, this is how serious, how committed, how sacrificial I would be to carry the message. You and I, for the most part, believe in the lostness of mankind. And yet, the same struggle we have is the struggle Jonah had. And so we must remind ourselves that our task is to address the spiritual lostness of people, not merely their moral depravity. When we went to Kazakhstan 20 years ago to Bayrzan Mimshala, listen, we didn't come with a message saying, you know, you need to live better. You need to change some of your choices. You need to clean up your act. That wasn't the message. The message was there is a God in heaven who sees us at the deepest level 
of our most important need, which is a spiritual level and a spiritual need at the core of every human being, there is the need for God. And only he can satisfy the penalty of the offenses we have made against him. So you see the face of this beautiful young Kazakh woman. By the way, she's not a first-generation believer. She's a second-generation believer. We led her mother to Christ years ago. And now she and her husband and family are sensing the call of God to full-time vocational ministry. Praise God. And it's because... It's because we offered them a message of hope which had transformative power at the place of their spiritual need. Jonah was out of touch with his mission. Second of all, he was also out of touch with his message. The word you need there is message. He'd been so preoccupied with going to proclaim and cry out to Nineveh that he lost touch with his actual message and its implications. This is fascinating. Jonah, he's a piece of work. He gets swallowed up by this fish, this big fish. He's laying in the belly of this fish for three days. Total darkness. God knows the, you know, the environment. And there he is, and he calls out to God. And when we read the book of Jonah, we hear that Jonah is happy to know that Almighty God actually finds Jonah in the belly of the fish, and he extols the virtues of God's kindness and mercy. So in the midst of his, of his experience in the belly of a fish... Jonah says, you know, our God is so kind. He's so merciful. He, he answers my prayers, even here in the belly of the fish. All the while, then when Jonah gets spat out on the shore, Jonah now forgets all about the notion that God is kind and merciful. He's not made any personal application to his own life. And he starts raving against the Ninevites, missing the opportunity to apply the truth that God has revealed to him in his own life. May I just mention this, friends. Is it possible to be in touch with the words of the gospel message without being in touch with the implications in our own lives? Is it possible to be close to the truth and yet never really apply the truth to our own hearts? Let me tell you a story. In 2 Kings 5, there's a prophet there by the name of Elisha. Remember him? His, his mentor was Elijah. When Elijah finished his ministry, Elisha, the protege, said, God, give me a double portion of Elijah's power. And so Elisha is recorded in the Bible to have performed 16 miracles where Elijah only recorded to have performed eight. So twice the number, double portion. One of the assistants, one of the protégés to Elisha was a man named Gehazi. And he was there in the school of the prophets, and he was tutored by Elisha, and he was there when the miracles were performed, and he was there to hear the instruction from, from the truth of God. And so Gehazi had every opportunity to be exposed to this wonderful ministry, prophetic ministry. There was one occasion when a man came to Elisha, and he was a very powerful Syrian general. Maybe you remember the story. And he was a man who was leprous, and his name was Naaman. And Naaman comes to Elisha, and he says, is there anything you can do for me? You can say I'm leprous. But he was very powerful. I had this huge entourage with him and so forth. And Elisha says to him, sure, God will heal your leprosy. All you have to do is go down to the Jordan River and dip yourself there seven times. Naaman took great offense because he was from Syria. And there are rivers there bigger and wider and cleaner. He said, that's beneath me to stoop down and dip myself in that muddy little creek, the Jordan River. And so, and so he took offense. He said, I'm not going to do it. But his assistants came and said, look, Naaman, what do you got to lose? What if it works? You'll be healed. 
and, and wouldn't that be worth it? And Naaman says, grudgingly says, well, okay, I'll do it. So he goes to the Jordan and he takes all of his armament off, strips down to, to his lower clothing, dips himself one, two, seven times. The seven times he comes out of the river, he looks at himself, he's healed. And it made him really happy. And he goes to Elisha and he says, how can I repay you for this service you've done to me? Elisha said, look, the only repayment I need is if you'll worship the one true God. Worship God. He's the one responsible for your healing. He's been kind and merciful to you. You don't have to pay me. And so Naaman said, all right, thank you so much. Naaman's on his way out of town. Gehazi now, Elisha's protege, he circles around town, catches Naaman, and says to Naaman, uh, you know, Elisha would never say this to you, but, you know, we have some needs, some financial needs in our ministry. Uh, the School of the Prophets, you know, we need some scholarship money and some capital improvements to the dorm and other stuff like that. And Elisha would never ask, but uh, as his assistant, I just thought I'd make you aware of the need. And Naaman said, hey, great. I offered it to Elisha. Take whatever you want. Take everything. Take whatever you can carry. And so Gehazi gets two arms full of all this, this, uh, this prize, takes it to his room, hides it under his bed, goes back to Elisha, and Elisha looks at him and he says, what you been doing? Gehazi says, nothing. How many of you are parents? So you got to get to the bottom of that, and I mean right now. And Elisha says to him, I know, I, know where you, I know where you've been. You went to Naaman, and you collected some loot, and you've hidden it away for yourself. And he scolds him for it, and then he offers this shocking statement. Watch this. Elisha says to Kahazi, the leprosy which was Naaman's now becomes yours. And Gehazi becomes leprous. Gehazi, you understand the point now, came to the place when surrounded by truth, never really applied it to his own life. Some sermons aren't very practical. I'm about to get very, very practical. The rubber is on the pavement. Listen to me. It is possible to hear a thousand evangelistic sermons and never be evangelized in your own heart. Think about that. It's possible to hear sermons on holiness or faithfulness or giving or commitment without ever making any difference in our lives. It's possible to attend special services or workshops or seminars or conferences on world missions without ever feeling any personal responsibility in mission. It's possible to sit in the middle of a church like Union Chapel that is the direct product of a mission-minded value culture that literally informs the personality and the vision and the purpose of this church and never sense God's mandate on your own life. That's possible to happen. We have this diversity of opportunities and outreach in the life of our church all the way to Central Asia in this rather dramatic and miraculous attempt to reach an unreached people group, which we have been part of successfully by God's grace, seeing breakthroughs in the lives of people on the other side of the world. Thank God and forever we'll celebrate that. All the way down to a simple act of kindness at the Muncie Mall when we wrap somebody's Christmas present for free. 
to demonstrate the love of God in a practical way. And all of the various means and ways by which we extend outreach to our community and to the larger world around us. And it is in, at the same time possible to see the amazing activity of God through our many outreach ministries and never feel obligated to participate or to go or to pray or to give. Really? Yeah, it's possible. It is possible to observe and even appreciate the substantial efforts Union Chapel makes in Muncie, Indiana, in Fort Collins, Colorado, where we've planted a church, in Taraz, Kazakhstan, where we've preached the gospel, and other parts of the world, and never sense the impulse to personally contribute financially to the faith promise, for example, or to our general missions budget, never sense the, the nudge to pray for these initiatives, and God forbid that might, he might call us out of some level of comfort that we've become accustomed to, to actually lift up our carcass and go somewhere and offer Christ in a meaningful way. Ladies and gentlemen, I stagger at the thought of what our local world and our greater world might be if all of us within the sound of God's truth actually took it seriously. We've been given this treasure that cannot be calculated in its value. And it's been placed in these earthen vessels of ours. And we've been given one mandate. Freely you've received, so freely give. Much has been given of you, so much will be required. You have been blessed in order to be a blessing. That's it. That's the mandate. That's the mission. That's the co-mission. To go and offer the same hope that we have found. And it's possible to be as close as we are to the truth of that and the practice of that and still not make the personal application. So we have people in the life of our church. Last week we talked about faith promise. We show them pictures of beautiful people who have sacrificed life and limb to go to strategic places of the world to offer Christ to people. We've talked about 20 years of investment in Kazakhstan, blah, 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 blah. And we just, we talk about it and here's how we fund it. This is what it takes. It takes money to do these things. And so we, we appeal to people and there are people in the life of our church who year after year after year sit here with faith promise and go, I don't think I want to do that. It's really not for me. You know, I don't even know those people anyway. I got lots of pressure on my own stuff. Stunning to me. Mind-boggling to me. I can't get my mind around that. I don't even know how that happens. Blows me away. Seriously. I'm staggered by that. If you're uncomfortable right now, May God give you a double portion. Yeah. Face to face. You, you want to talk privately? Just come on. I'll talk to you privately. I don't understand you. I understand your worldview. I don't get you. There's a God of kindness and mercy whom you love to relate to you kindly and mercifully, but you can't see it applied to your neighbor? You don't have to go to Kazakhstan. Everyone in this room has lost people, lost and going to hell within shouting distance of your front porch. Never lift a hand, never engage in a program, never take an invitation next door and say, would you come to church with me? 
Never offer Christ. Never, never say a good word for Jesus. Astonishing. Robert W. Dale, a great preacher who had difficulty with the doctrine of hell, said, there's only one man I would listen to on the doctrine of hell, and that is D.L. Moody, because I have never heard D.L. Moody speak on the subject without breaking down in the middle of it and weeping. Apparently real to him. One of the most notable philosopher skeptics of history was a Scottish philosopher by the name of David Hume. Any of you who have studied philosophy in college or grad school, I studied about David Hume in philosophy class in seminary. He was a notable atheist, and anyone who has studied philosophy knows the name David Hume. He hammered nails into the coffin of theism as no other before his time. And one day, David Hume was rushing through the streets of London, pulling his raincoat around him in the cold weather, and somebody said, Sir Hume, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to listen to a man called George Whitfield, and he's going to preach. Now, George Whitfield was a contemporary of our father, John Wesley, in the Methodist movement. They were friends. Whitfield was a great orator, a great preacher of the gospel. And the astounded bypasser said, you don't believe what Whitfield does, do you? And David Hume said, absolutely not. But Whitfield does, and I want to hear a man who does. C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, he said, and I quote, there had been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they became to care nothing for God himself. As if the good Lord has nothing to do but merely exist. There have been... There have become some who have become so occupied in spreading Christianity that they have given no thought to Christ himself. Let me say that in simple words. How marvelous it is to know that in this land we have the privilege of hearing the word of God, the truth of God delivered. The songwriter narrates it for us. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. We've heard this wonderful and glorious good news. And many of us in the life of this church have achieved and acquired lofty positions of influence. There are people all across our congregation who have achieved high academic credentials and influential positions as teachers and professors and leaders. We have teachers and coaches. We have business leaders and business owners and, and people who have, who have rose in the, in the social strata of the community and have enormous influence over numbers and numbers of people, employees and students and, and the general population. It's a, it's a phenomenon. And we see the challenges as leaders in those kinds of positions and the weaknesses and the dysfunction of people all around us. We see it because it, it happens in humanity. Here is the question. The question to you is, do you have the answer resident in your own life? Is the hope you ascribe to in your Christian life, is it real in your own heart? Is it so real that your life matches your message and you can meaningfully give it away to others? Friends, I, I know of no other hope for mankind. It matters not ultimately who we elect as president or the laws we enact or, or the legislation we pass or who controls Congress. Not ultimately. I see no other hope for me and I see no other hope for you or all of mankind apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message. And is that message real to you? And is it so real to you that it's virtually impossible for the people around you and the people you influence not to catch it? 
How marvelous when you can be in touch with the message. The songwriter captured the thought for us. What words should I borrow to thank you, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should my fainting be, for let me never, never leave my love for thee. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him enough to share him with the people you know? Is he real to you? None of us are big enough to deal with the great crimes of humanity all around us, but there is someone who is, and it cost him his son, who was a missionary to this world. He never trivialized our sin, but took care of it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And we should be serious as models of this message and this mission. Here's the last thought. Jonah is out of touch with his mission, out of touch with his message, but he is in touch with his comfort. The word you need is comfort. Now, does this resonate with anyone besides me? In touch with their comfort? How many of you get a witness? I feel warmth. Touch with my... my Listen, if I get a preaching invitation in February, would you come in February to South Dakota and preach in our event? Or at the same time, would you come in February to preach in South Florida at our event? Which of those two invitations do you think I'll feel the witness of God's direction toward? (laughs) I'm in touch with my comfort. I can hear Jesus calling me to South Florida in February just really easy. It's almost like a shout. We all move naturally in the direction of our comfort. America's highest values include security, personal safety, financial security. We highly value those things. Here's the only problem with it. Here's the only problem with placing security, personal security, financial security at the list at the top of your value list. It's not biblical. (laughs) You'll search the Bible in vain to embrace those values as your highest goals in life. What informs your life? Security, man. I protect myself and my stuff. That's the goal. Everything else takes second, second place to that. And that's what Americans do. We move naturally in that direction of our comfort. And yet God will call us to levels of discomfort. And I see this in the context of missions. We live in a world coming apart, a world that's in agony, a world that's crying out for hope, and we have the message of hope. And let me just say, in order for people to receive this message of hope, some of us are going to have to suffer. Some of us are going to have to go without. Some of us are going to have to be uncomfortable once in a while. I can't give anything to faith promise to world missions in my church. Lots of people at the church, lots of people given to it. Apparently they're getting all their needs met. They don't need my money. I'm just, I, I don't have much to give anyway. So I, besides, I've got, you know, I got a big Christmas list. Dude, it's not your birthday. I'm going to get into this during December. I'm going to try to convince you not to spend all your money on things that the people you know don't need. At Christmas. Make any sense. It's crazy. It's crazy. 
Crazy thinking, crazy time. Get sucked into the vortex. Oh, I just love to buy for my kids and my grandkids. Stop it. They don't need it. Well, that's, I, that's my sermon coming up, so you want to <laughs> spread the word about how exciting it's going to be at church in December. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be, yeah, the whole theme is it's not your birthday. <laughs> oh, gosh. Let me summarize with this. Always trying to promote the best possible enthusiasm. Let me, let me end with this rather poignant story. It comes to us from the historic pages of the World Missionary Movement. I've mentioned that Jonah was out of touch with his message and mission, in touch with his own comfort. Let me tell you a guy who lived his life completely opposite to Jonah. Let me introduce you to a man and to the heart of a guy named David Livingston. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland, 1813. He sat on his father's knee who told him stories of famed Scottish missionary Carl Gustav. And we've all heard the name David Livingston. Could I just step out of this story for just a moment? Did you hear me just use that phrase that he sat as a boy, he sat on his dad's knee as his dad told him about the exploits of a famous Scottish missionary uh, called Gustav, Carl Gustav? Could I just say kind of parenthetically here that we need more men and we need more fathers who will set their children and their grandchildren on their knee and tell them great stories of the men and women of faith of history who have been in touch with the message, been in touch with the mission, out of touch with their own comfort and have done great things for God so much so that it inspires the next generation to want to do something great for God, to be on mission with God in the world. We need more men like that. Livingston, at an early age, made a commitment to missions, and he said, and I quote, Lord, send me where you want me to go. Make me that kind of missionary. When he was only nine years old, David Livingston had memorized the entire 119th Psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, to recognize the primacy of Scripture and God's Word in his own heart. Psalm 119 is all about the honor of God's Word and its reliability. As a young man, he stood outside a cluster of African villages where he saw the smoke spiraling upwards, and in his diary, he entered these words, and I quote, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages has burned itself within my heart. And then he got on his knees and he wrote these words, and I quote, Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties that bind me. Save only the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And through it, all the words of Christ came to me, he wrote, and he said, I am with you always, all the way to the end. He married Mary Moffat of the Moffat missionary family, and that poor woman was to suffer want and deprivation for many years because of the torrid conditions under which she and David were living in Africa. They lost some of their children. She completely lost her health. Finally, she said, David, I need to go back to recoup my health and my strength or I'm going to die. And he understood, and he loved her dearly, and they bid each other goodbye and she came back to her homeland as they would exchange letters, which took months to get back and forth. And she 
would set eyes on her husband, David Livingston, again, not after a month, not after a year, but after five years, they were apart. He wrapped his arms around his wife when he finally returned home. She pushed him away for just a moment to look at him, and he was not recognizable to her. His face had been burned and leathered in the African sun. She looked at one of his eyes, now blinded, as he had walked into the branch of a tree. She saw his atrophied shoulder, which had been torn apart by a lion, and he walked with an awkward gait as she stood and cried, trying to recognize her own husband. Members of the royal family wanted to meet him. Professors wanted to see him. Young people wanted to meet him because he was such a pioneer, such a a famous person. Finally, he looked at his wife, Mary, and said, Sweetheart, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun still burns within my heart. She said, David, I think you should go and minister there. In a little while, when I get stronger, I'll join you. He understood and accepted and returned to Africa. And a long while later, she joined him. And the very day that she set foot on soil in Africa, she contracted the disease again. And a short span after that, he buried her. An eyewitness said as he lowered her body into the ground, they saw him kneel and using her casket as an altar prayed, and I quote, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall seek no value in anything I possess or in anything I do except in relationship to thy kingdom and to thy service. He said later that the words of Christ came to him in that moment and said, And I am with you always, all the way to the end. He went back to his home in Africa of OGG. While he was gone, someone had taken his medicine, and in desperation he prayed, Lord, you promised to be with me, and you know I need that medicine. Please help me. And even as he prayed, he heard someone enter the room, and he looked up from his posture of prayer and for the first time gazed into the face of a white man, a stranger, and he said, Who are you, sir? And my name, he said, is Henry M. Stanley. And then those famous words, Mr. Livingston, I presume. He said, Mr. Livingston, let me tell you two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Please don't try to convert me. Newspapers in America have sent me to try and do an article on your life and work. That's the only reason I'm here. Please don't push your religion on me. And number two, somebody in America has sent this medication for you. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth bent his knee on African soil, gave his life to Christ. The best biography of Livingston you'll read is written by Henry M. Stanley. It's in two volumes entitled Livingston of Africa. Recommend it to you. In Blaintyre, Scotland, you can see Livingston's house. There the story is told, including the famous painting of Stanley bidding Livingston to come home when Stanley left Livingston for the last time. He begged him to come because he knew he was so ill and weak, but Livingston would not leave Africa. Shortly thereafter, his closest friend, African friend, a man by the name of Chuma, he and a friend would carry Livingston by stretcher from village to village where Livingston would preach the gospel. He turned to his friend Chuma one afternoon and he said, please take me back home. I'm too weak. I'm too sick to go on. And they carried him into his home and they were about to spill him onto his cot when Livingston said, No, please help me onto my knees. 
And he got on his knees and started to pray. And they left him there alone. And Chuma and his friends stood just outside the door and listened to him pray. And they reported later that it was so intense and so meaningful and so personal. And they stood outside and occasionally stepped in to see that he was okay. But after a while, Chuma decided that the doctor needed to sleep more than he needed to pray. And he went in and put his hand on his shoulder and said, Doctor, sir, please. And Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had tried to live, in touch with his mission, in touch with his message, and completely out of touch with his own comfort. Chuma carried Livingston's body 1,800 miles by foot for nine months. So his remains could be shipped back to England. Before he did that, though, he removed Livingston's heart and buried it under a tree in Africa. That's where his heart really was. Listen, I don't know where you are today. I know where I am. I know exactly where I am. And it's about 58 notches below Livingston's quality. But all of us are in a place today where we could take a next step. We can all lean forward and move forward just a little bit. Getting better in touch with our mission and better in touch with our message and out of touch with our own comfort. Gee, some simple thing we could do is fill out a faith promise card. You say, God, I don't know where it's going to come from, but if you'll supply it, I'll give it. Here's an amount. Everyone can do that. Anyone could do that. It's not a pledge. Not a commitment, it's just a promise. Maybe you could do that today as a step. And then as we pray this morning, perhaps we could be bold. More bold than we've been in our lives or maybe for a long time in our lives. That God might send us as long as he goes with us. So would you pray with me just for a moment? I wonder if you're willing to pray as meaningfully as you've ever prayed. Remembering and believing that the problems out there are not moral. They're not, they're not political. They're spiritual. And to believe if you got in touch with the heart of God, there's a wideness in his mercy that can change even the most resistant person in the world. And if you're willing to give up some of your own comforts, God is willing to use you in some difficult place here or there in sacrificial ways. Let me use as our closing prayer the words from Charles Wesley's hymn. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, build a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up the gift in me. Ready for thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat till death thy endless mercy seal and make my sacrifice complete. Now I'm going to say the words. I dare you to believe them in your heart. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me.
Remind us, oh God, that we can make a difference in the world as we get in touch with the message and in touch with the mission and out of touch with our own comfort. I pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said.